Hey, if you have a Bible, would you open up with me to Psalm 85? Psalms 85 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. If you're new or you are visiting with us, welcome. We are in the Advent season. And uh, as we kind of alluded to last week, when we, when we join in on Advent, we're not just going through the motions of a particular season here at our, uh, at our particular church. We're actually joining in with the church uh, universal and historical. So we're, we're jumping into a season that the church has sort of reflected on and practiced now for some 2,000 years. And it's not just uh, here in our location, but around the globe. And one of the ways that we do that uh, is by lighting the candles that reflect the particular elements of, of Advent, but also by joining in on what David talked about last week, observing the lectionary, these collected scriptures that have been passed down through generations that the church has used as a, as a tool or as a means to, to commune with the Lord and to hear from Him uh, collectively. And so today, the lectionary reading is here in Psalm 85, uh, an interesting psalm. As we talked about last week, David talked about he was reading a psalm of Asaph. He said uh, the, the choir of the Asaphites would have sang it together, which is the greatest band name never used, Asaph and the Asaphites. Dibs on that one, if I ever learned how to play an instrument, but... Today we're looking at a psalm of Korah, uh, possibly written, most likely perhaps written, uh, after Israel had returned from the Babylonian exile, after the the consequences of their sin and their idolatry had befallen them, and they they, they come back to to Israel, They're, they're back home, but they're not yet fully functioning as the people they once were. Their walls are torn down. Uh, perhaps a contemporary of Nehemiah would be when this psalm was written. Uh, and so the, the, the psalmist is looking back at what had transpired and how God had delivered and saved them before, but also asking God to continue that act of deliverance and that, that act of salvation in the present as he or she or they envision a day in the future when God will fully, completely, and totally do what he promises he will do. So look with me, if you will, in Psalm 85, beginning in verse 1. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps a way. This is the word of the Lord. So today we, we light the peace candle, and as I reflected and thought about peace this week, I thought, man, this is a kind of a hard term to define, and I would venture a guess this morning that if you haven't spent time meditating upon what peace means, you're, you're probably just ad- ad- adopting one of the maybe familiar or common interpretations of what peace may mean. So for many, I think peace simply means the absence of conflict. 
For many, it's just the absence of conflict. Now, I, I grew up, uh, I have a sister who's two years older than me, and we fought all the time. Like, we're really tight now, and so uh, we laugh about some of these things, or she laughs about these things, because she's like, remember when I used to, like, pummel you into a bloody heap, and you would go crying to mom, and I'm like, yeah, it was funny, huh? Um, so one, one particular instance, my sister had kind of called dibs on shotgun in perpetuity, meaning she got to ride in the front seat always, and I was banned from ever riding in the front seat in the car. And we went on a, I think it was a doctor's appointment one time, went and had a checkup. And when we were walking out to the car, I asked my mom, hey, can, can I ride in the front seat home? And she said, sure. And my sister went along with it. And I was like, whoa, what just, what just happened? So I'm, my mom had an 83 Mercury Cougar with like fake white leather seats. It was a, it was a banger of a ride. It had an eight-track player. It was awesome. And I'm sitting in the front seat and we had stopped and gotten milkshakes, I think, on the way home. And I'm drinking my milkshake and I'm you know, putting the Saturday Night Fever A-track in the deck and rocking out, having what seemed to be a very peaceful experience when, as we're going down the road, out of nowhere, a right cross comes across my face and just pops me right in the nose. And I'm bleeding in my mom's seat. My mom's pulling over, get napkins, clean that up. And my sister's dying laughing. She had been saving a punch for me for getting in the front seat the entire ride. Now, if peace is just the absence of conflict... I learned at an early age, me and my sister may not be fighting now, but I got to sleep with one eye open. I've got to be prepared because she's going she's gonna to take me down next chance she gets. And so I really couldn't experience peace because peace was always going to be out in front because there was always the chance that conflict could emerge. I had to stay on my toes. So peace has got to be more than, than just the absence of conflict. Uh, some, I think, believe peace to be some kind of state of like tranqu tranquility. You know, it's like some sort of Zen practice where you can kind of escape reality and enter into some headspace whereby you don't feel any pressure or any anxiety or any of the unnerving realities of this world. And so there's all sorts of practices that are given to folks, you know, go out in nature, think about these things, practice mindfulness. I remember I always went to the, the, the dental clinic at the, the Choctaw Nation, which is where I had to, um, you know, get all my dental work done when I was a kid because it was free. And it was always like some dental student who just learned what the instruments were called. And he was like, open up your mouth and let's see what happens. And, uh, but when I became an adult, like, it, like close to being an adult, like 17 or so, my mom got, actually got health insurance. So we got to go to a, what I would call a real dentist. And I remember going to this dentist's office in like the, you know, mid-90s. And I walk into the waiting room, and they're playing, like, classical music or Kenny G or something. And the, the wallpaper was like a, you know, a serene beachscape. And then you go sit in the dentist chair, and it's the wallpaper is like a forest. And I thought, you're not fooling me, man. Like, you can play the, the music and, you know, paper the walls in a way that looks like I'm somewhere peaceful. I know you're about to drill on my teeth. And so it was impossible to enter into some sort of headspace of tranquility, if that's what peace is, whenever you know what's coming. And that's why for so many of you, if you've ever tried the self-help program of getting more peace in your life, and you've experienced the flooding in of all the, the what-ifs and the possibilities and the anxieties that just sort of start bubbling up in your heart, when you do get still and quiet, you realize, well, maybe peace is absolutely and completely unattainable. I can't practice these things and get peace. And some, some of y'all peace is just racial, r relational harmony. Like you've, you've learned to just get along with the people around you. But, but even that form of peace, relational harmony peace, is, is hard because you ultimately have to exclude some people. Because let's just be honest, some people aren't very peaceful people. 
And so, yeah, you may have peace with this group of people, but you can't have peace with all people because it starts to fall apart rather quickly. So what, what do you do about that? And especially in the holiday season, whenever we're supposed to be focusing on and preparing and practicing peace, but yet if you drive in any parking lot right now, you will lose your mind. You try to grocery shop and there's inevitably two people blocking one end of the, the aisle, having some conversation and some oblivious dude at the other aisle who's got his cart turned horizontally so you can't even walk down it. Like, how do you not lose your mind? So what is peace and where does it come from? That's the question I want to ask today. And how do we get more of it in our lives? Because I believe that the scripture holds out peace as a possibility for all people, regardless of their circumstances. That there's a transcendent form of peace that comes into our lives, not by virtue of eliminating or excluding certain people, not by virtue of just getting relational harmony with one another, or just by the cessation of conflict. There's a peace that as Paul says in the New Testament, surpasses understanding. That when you zoom out and, and look at your circumstances and look at the condition of your life, it makes no sense that you would be at peace. But yet you have it. So where do you get it and how do you hold on to it? What, what, what practices go into to play for the people of God to receive the peace of God in their lives such that we become a peaceful people? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Those who pursue this particular way of uh, being ordered in the world and in life. Those, those who, as Paul would say in the book of Romans and as the author of Hebrews would say in, in the book of Hebrews, those who pursue peace at all costs with others, as long as it depends upon you, live peacefully with all. How, how do we do that? Well, I think Psalm 85 shows us that in this particular season in Israel's time and history when perhaps they've just returned from exile, yeah, there's been some measure of restoration because they're no longer in Babylon and no longer in captivity, but yet things aren't as they should be. Things aren't even as they once were. So perhaps there are, there are people who are haunted by a time when things seemed more peaceful. The, the rule and, and reign of, of, of King Solomon, the wisest man who had ever ruled and reigned, who set up the kingdom to be ordered in such a way through wisdom, by obedience, that the blessing of God would pour out and that shalom, this, this stated way of existence that we see in the scriptures when it's talking about peace, that creation is doing what creator intended for it to do. That had been established, but now that's not the case. And so the psalmist, I believe, in writing this poem or this song is teaching the people of God the, the practices by which they, they re-engage and, and, and are reoriented by the peace that God has for them. First thing that we see the psalmist do is he reflects on God's grace. He has a time of reflection uh, on, on when and how specifically God had been gracious to Israel. Look back in verse 1. It opens up with the first three verses, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath and you returned and you turned from your hot anger. So the psalmist looks back on a time, and again, if this is post-Babylon, post-exile, then that would make sense that there was a time whenever he could look at and say, you know what, you established us once upon a time as your people. And there was a time, God, where we can look back and see that you had every right to be angry with us. You, you, you were just in your righteous anger, yet you turned away from that. You didn't give us what we deserved. That's grace. You gave us instead mercy. You gave us instead love. You gave us instead blessing and, and favor. 
And so my suggestion to you this morning, especially if you're like me and you come in in this particular season, perhaps with some missing element of peace in your life, maybe it's, it's in your marriage, maybe it's been highly conflictual for as long as you can remember, maybe it's in your job, maybe it's, it's just in life in general seems to be filled with all sorts of disorder and a lack of peace. The first thing I would suggest you do today, based on what the psalmist teaches us here, is to just stop and reflect and ask a few simple questions about what it means to see how God has, in fact, been gracious to you, because he has. Think on the, set, the times and the seasons in your past whenever uh, God was, was, was moving and blessing towards you. That's not meant to provoke you to think about the disorder now. It's meant to see that in the past, God has been, in fact, faithful to you. Can you trace the blessings of God in your life? Can you see the times and the ways when God was on a rescue mission for your soul? When through the, the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of the person of Jesus, God could have been completely just and righteous in, in leading you to the consequences of your sin, but instead God intervened. As we studied in the book of Ephesians back in the fall, but God, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together. It is by grace we are saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. Can you pinpoint in your life, on a map, the times, the seasons, the moments when God had done those things? Can you trace God, God's redemptive action in your life? Maybe times when your heart had grown hard to a particular person or to a particular idea or way of, of being, yet God broke in and reshaped and reformed your, your hostility and turned it in, into mercy, where he gave you what you didn't have to do what he had called you to do. I, I really want to make this as practical as possible today because I really hope and pray that in this particular season, our church and the people of God can practice a, a peaceful way of existence that would model to the world what we were intended to be by the person of Jesus, that the grace that we profess with our mouths could be experienced in our lives such that we become gracious and so to do that, I really want to give you, I think, three questions that I would love for you. I usually don't give homework in sermons. That feels like it's anti-peace, but trust me, I think this will help foster peace in your life. Three questions that I'd love for you to sit with sometime this week, perhaps Bible open, journal open, perhaps reading Psalm 85 once again, and see if you can reflect on how God has been gracious. The first question is real simple. How has God blessed you? List it out. Are, are you clothed? Are you fed? Is there a roof over your head? Is there some measure of resources in the bank account? Are, are you, you know, functioning in this season as in your physical abilities? Had you been sick in the past and now you're well? Just look at your life with an objective eye towards tracing out God's blessing. Because the psalmist, I think, shows us here that that's one of the ways we move towards a state of peace. We can see how God has been favorable, kind, and gracious to us. When and how has God been merciful to you? I would encourage you, put a date down. I mean, if you're a Christian, the first thing you should be able to look at is like, there was a time when I did not know Jesus, and then there was a time when I did. And that before Christ and after Christ moment is the moment, I think, the, the, the time when God's mercy was, was brought to an awareness of your consciousness and of your, of your faith and of your heart and of your soul. When did that happen for you? When you, you could have been living this way forever, but instead God intervened. 
When has God intervened in your marriage? When has he intervened in, in the life of your kids or of your parents? When has God intervened in your work? What are the times and the seasons where God could have poured out justly his judgment on you, but he didn't, and instead he gave you space to turn? Reflect on that. Write it down. Date it if you can. See how and when God had done that. That's what the psalmist does here. There was a time, he says, whenever we had iniquity stored up and God's just wrath could have been poured out on us and we deserved it. But, he says, God, you forgave the iniquity of your people. God, you turned from that. God very easily could have poured down wrath from heaven, but he, he relented. Not because of what we have done, but because of who he is. And it's through that then that I think as we get to the conclusion in a minute, he can say that God has steadfast love. Hebrew word there is hesed. It's this type of love that kind of comes at us unconditionally. It transcends a love that is conditioned upon uh, the, the obedience to the law. God has that in his nature. That's why God can be merciful like this. Reflect on that. When and how has that happened to you? And then finally, I would just ask you to ask this question. How is God's mercy shaping your life and your love right now? Who in your life would you find it completely unthinkable that you could show them forgiveness or kindness or, or be gentle with them or have an orientation towards them that is one of, of, of tolerance or of grace had it not been for knowing that that's exactly what God has done for you? How is the love of God reordering the loves in your own heart and life now? Because that's where the psalmist takes this next. That's where verse 4 picks up. And he says, okay, God, you've done this in the past. So now, based on the faithfulness of who you are and what you've done, I'm asking you to restore us once again to this state. God, would you speak peace to us once again? Lord, would you bring restoration into our lives? Would you would revive us? Would you renew us? Would you lead us to rejoicing? Look back in verse 4. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. And put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back in folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him that glory may dwell in our land. So the psalmist spends the first three verses reflecting on the grace of God in his life and in the life of Israel. These are the ways specifically God has been gracious to us. And he, he plans that and paints that out for us. But then in verse four, he begins to respond to God's initiation with him, to God's initiation, initiative and his love that is directed towards him. So, so the psalmist says, based on what you've done in the past, God, these are the things I know to be true about your character and about your person. And so I then feel the freedom to ask for you to do that once again. I'm going to respond to your initiative, the initiative God had taken in bringing them back home. And there's really, I think, three ways that the psalmist even phrases that, that, that makes sense. The first one is, is on this word turn. At the end of verse 3, he says that, that God had turned away from his anger. Then down, I think it's in verse 7, he says, but don't let us turn back to folly. And this idea of turning is the idea of repentance. It's a turning from something and towards something else. It's the, the big biblical idea that's built out in the New Testament with the Greek word metanoia, to change your mind to rethink, to reconsider what it means to be saved. 
rescued or delivered. And so the psalmist picks up on that in repentance, and he says, he says, God turns away from his anger and his wrath, verse 8, and then, so therefore let us not turn back to folly. God has revealed wisdom to us. Don't let us reject it, but let us turn towards that and away from folly. And the idea here is that whenever you turn to God in faith, that the act of repentance, I'm no longer believing I can save myself. I'm no longer trusting in this this idol or this small thing to deliver me. And instead, I'm going to turn my direction towards God. When you do that, you're turning away uh, away from sin and towards the peace that only God can supply. Because what the psalmist shows us here is that the, the act of repentance is the way that we are set up and situated in such a manner to where we can even receive peace in our lives. In other words, because God is good, because he is kind, because he is loving in a steadfast manner, he can't both give us peace and allow us to continue on in folly or sin. It would be contrary to God's nature for him to bless us with a peace that surpasses all understanding while also simultaneously allowing us to move in a direction that is contrary to who he is and what he's done. This is why repentance is the Christian life. As we grow in an increasing way in the awareness and character of God to see who he is and what he's done, we're also made aware of the areas of our life that are not in concert with that character that are not walking in light with that in the light with that character. And so we turn from those things and we turn towards God. That's in biblical language, repentance. You were not designed by your creator to, to chase after small worthless idols and find peace. They may, they may give you momentary blips of, of peace, but then it fle- it's fleeting and it dissipates rather quickly. You kind of get what you thought you wanted, and when you get it, you think that's what peace is, and then it only takes just a minute for you to realize, no, that's not it at all. It's empty. It's void. There's no peace there. God did not design us to be able to keep secret sins such that they plague our souls while also simultaneously experiencing some measure of peace. Yeah, we may have the absence of conflict. We may have you know, some particular form of relational harmony going on or found some state of transcendent zen. But if there is ever-present sin in our lives that we refuse to repent of, God cannot be both good and kind and allow that to continue on. Repentance is needed and necessary for us to experience peace. And in many ways, repentance is the act, act of shedding the weight of sin such that peace can come flooding in. All the hostilities that you've been nursing, all the grievances and the record keeping and scorekeeping and your relationships where you're, you feel justified in fostering some resentment. If God is a God of peace, he wants to free you from that burden of being the judge and jury of all other humans because it's not a burden that you were meant to carry. That's his job. And repentance then looks like extending forgiveness. It looks like assuming a posture of kindness and gentleness because that's what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. It looks like patience with people. In both their failings and their falterings, you can kind of look upon them with some, some sense of playfulness because that's you. Other humans are just mirroring back to you your own frailty. And then assume this place where you can, in fact, receive peace. That's what repentance does reformats the heart to receive what only God can give. And then when that happens, the psalmist says, you revive us. You, you bring life back into us. Look back in, in verse 6. Will you not revive us again? 
God initiates repentance via revival. His spirit convicts us and it prompts us to turn. Revival is, is waking up. It's sobering up. It's seeing that all the things I've been chasing that I thought would bring me peace, they won't in fact do that. Only God can give that. And so it's what David talked about last week. We, we become aware of the presence of God in our lives. We're attuned to his spirit. We allow him to convict us of sin. We don't run from conviction. We run to it because we know that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That is revival. And when we're revived, then verse 8 can happen. When we've been brought back to life by the Spirit of God himself, then our our ears are open to his word such that, verse 8, let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back in folly. Keep turning towards him. So so let me ask you this morning, before we get this last little point that he brings brings up, let me ask you this morning, if you came in with a, maybe a fairly significant absence of peace in your life, is it possible, just consider it with me, is it possible this morning that that's due to a lack of repentance? Have, have you grown to accept certain particular sins as normative for you because you say things like, well, this is just the way I'm wired. Everyone in my family is hot-tempered. We've always kind of wrestled with this. I've, this is just who I am. Have you accepted a a position or a posture before the Lord where you think, I'll get just enough peace, but not enough to where I have to really turn from these things, where I have to practice the the, the exposure of the soul that goes before a holy God and says, I need to turn, I need to be renewed, I need to be revived. That's true of you today. As you go back and reflect on God's grace, I would invite you to practice repentance. What specific areas, what, what, what parts of your heart does the Holy Spirit prick and say, this, this needs to be addressed. We need to do business here. Confession and walking in the light and being honest about your failings and your sins in this way. It will only open you up to receive the peace of God. Do you believe it this morning? And when we do, the psalmist says, it leads to something very specific for us. If you revive us again, verse 6, that your people may rejoice in you. So you want evidence of the peace of God being manifest in your life? Are you rejoicing? And we'll talk about this more next week because rejoicing is the act of practicing joy. That's what the word means. And so next week we light the joy candle and we'll do a deep dive there. But just think about this this morning. The very act of gathering as the church is not just so that we receive through God's word peace. It's so that we're primed to sing back to God all the things that we know to be true about his attributes and his character and his nature. And in so doing, we're disciplining ourselves to be a people who experience peace. Rejoicing is a peace-inducing event in the life of a believer. It's why I encourage you to sing. It's not just because we have words on the screen and we have a rock and band. It's that God does something supernatural in the voices and hearts of his people. He shapes us and even mediates peace to us as we sing his praises. It's, it's why we're in this book in the middle of your Bible that's 150 chapters long, and it's songs that the people of God have been singing from the beginning about God's nature and his character and his attributes and his worth. It's because somehow in this, the prayers that we pray, the poems that we recite, God mediates peace into our lives. I don't fully understand it, but I've read the Bible enough to know that this is sort of what happens 
when the people of God experience God's peace. We see it at the end of creation. On the seventh day, God rests and reflects, and he sees that these things are very good. Adam, when he sees Eve, bursts into song. We see it in the book of Revelation. When God is revealed in his fullness and creation and heaven and earth collide once again, what do the people of God start doing? Singing. What's happening in the very throne room of heaven at this moment? Rejoicing. Why? Because they're in the presence of the prince of peace. And that's what we're called into even this morning as we gather as God's people, to rejoice in such a way so that we respond to God's initiative. We're, we're revived by his spirit. We practice repentance because that's what it means to be a Christian. And in so doing, we become a people who experience peace. But the psalmist doesn't end with that. If we experience peace in the here and now, then he says we can reimagine God's favor into the future. And this is what I love about the way the Bible's knit together, always pointing us to the person of Jesus. Listen to how the psalmist says it down in verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. So the psalmist says, okay, if we experience revival. If we repent, we experience revival. We turn to God in rejoicing. He says, surely God will bring salvation. And he says, oh, by the way, I look out into the future and there will come a day when the righteousness of God and the peace of God will kiss. When when justice will rain down from heaven and righteousness will come up from the earth. When this metaphor is when all things will be as they are supposed to be. But then the question comes, how How can the psalmist anticipate a time where the faithfulness of God and the steadfast love love of God can meet? And the answer is that he's looking out to, to the future to see that God will bring a Messiah who will embody the character, nature, and attributes of God, who will live in the way that human beings were designed to live, and in so doing, in take upon himself the sins of humanity such that this event, this one cataclysmic space and time comes colliding together, righteousness and peace coalesce and kiss. And the people of God can be renewed, restored, and made whole through him. And Tim and Kathy Keller's uh, devotion on the Psalms, this devotion our staff has been using this year to kind of reflect on these things. They say this about this particular passage. They say, uh, love and truth must meet in harmony. But how can God in faithfulness punish sin, yet also in love embrace sinners? Christ reconciles all things in heaven and earth by making peace through his blood. When Jesus bore our punishment on the cross, love and holiness kissed. They were both fulfilled at once. Love without holiness is mere sentiment. Righteousness and law without a grasp of grace leads to self-righteousness. Our natural temperaments incline us to one or the other, but the gospel keeps truth and love together in our lives. And the more they are unified within us, the more we are brought into the deepest relationship with those who believe the gospel too. In this this act of giving us Jesus, and specifically Jesus' death on the cross, both the love of God and the justice of God can coalesce such that we don't have to run from that event, we can run to it. And when we do, God's favor, we know, rests forever upon us in the person of Jesus. That's why we always come back to the gospel here. That's why we'll take communion in just a moment. 
We can have peace because we know that God has given it to us. We know that he's given it to us because he did it on a timeline, on a map. In history, Christ died in our place for our sins. And in that, we can know then that the Prince of Peace rules. That's why this experience of peace transcends our circumstances. God has done all that is needed and necessary to reconcile us to himself and grant us peace forever. Which means that if we want to follow in the way of Jesus, if we want to have our footsteps be made into the way of God's footsteps, then you must order your life as one who has received the peace of God. That means that if we know that God is good to us and he'll be good to us forever, you shouldn't be cynical. That's where cynicism goes to die. I don't have to wonder, speculate about what someone's angle is. I know that God's going to be good to me forever. I know that because of Jesus. It means that if Jesus has, has, has reconciled in himself all things, then I can lay aside my resentments. I can let go of those things. Because all that was needed to bring me back to God has been done and has been accomplished. I know that if Jesus was a man acquainted with much sorrow, that if he cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them, they know not what they're doing, and it is finished, then that's where my grief and my sorrows can go to die as well. Jesus has been resurrected. The grave no longer has a hold on us. And it's in a knowledge and an experience of that that we can find true and lasting peace. So, Father, this morning, would you grant that to your people? Restore us again, O God, of our salvation. Put away your indignation towards us. Revive us again that we may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, that we would be a people marked by it, who not only experience it, but express it to one another and to a world in desperate need of peace. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.